10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine running. Moon Show, you are go for launch. Hello, Moon fans. Welcome to Moon Show, a For All Mankind podcast. I'm your host, Neek Yeager, and with me today are Rick. Hi, Bob. Scott. Hi, Bob. And Gus. Hi, Bob. Today, we will be discussing episodes six, seven, and eight of season two. As usual, we'll start with a synopsis of all three episodes and then move on to the discussion. Episode six, Best Laid Plans. Danielle is super excited because the Russians have arrived to develop their plans for the upcoming Astro-Cosmo meeting up in space mission. But the Russians are being all severe and uncooperative, although to be fair, the Americans aren't exactly willing to compromise either. Both sides want to be in charge and be perceived as the more important team. Things almost get derailed because the Russians refuse to be the so-called passive part of the docking procedure. Margot is extremely frustrated, but she manages to make some headway with Sergei, her Russian equivalent. And in an effort to get him away from his bodyguard slash prison guard, she invites him to a clandestine meeting at her jazz club, and they bond over music and having nothing in their lives besides work. Danielle also bonds with her Russian equivalent, Stepan, taking him and his comrade to the outpost for burgers and talking in metaphors about the sacrifices they make and their mission being propaganda. That makes it all worthwhile, her sacrifice. All lies, she suffered and died, sacrificed for the motherland. Think about all the other dogs who fell out because they were too spirited, too scared. But like her, she stuck it out. What do you say? I'm saying, give her some credit, some agency. She went to outer space for the people she loved and for anybody who loved her back. That's how she died. Not for all of humanity, for the people she loved. Talaika. Talaika. The NASA engineers are tasked with figuring out a new docking mechanism, one that wouldn't make either side passive. And Elena wants to be part of that team, but that's not her job. Her boss, Bill, tells her to stay in her lane, but Elena isn't good at following orders. So when Margot and Sergey come to the lab after drawing some specs on cocktail napkins, they find her working on the project anyway. Good thing she didn't follow orders because she finds the missing piece to the puzzle. Ellen and Pam discuss their relationship. Pam isn't willing to hide her sexuality, so Ellen considers leaving NASA and asks Larry for a divorce. He reluctantly agrees. Back on the moon, Tracy seems to be making good on her promises and is actually pulling her shit together. She still sneaks smoke breaks, but she talks to Deke's grave as a means of working through her demons. And she jokes around with the Marines who are doing target practice with their fancy moon guns. When she's on a call with her disinterested son, Jimmy, Gordo overhears her say she misses the old days. So he decides he wants her back and visits her husband to tell him of this plan. Sam Cleveland doubts Gordo can do it, so he's unthreatened. A couple episodes ago, we discussed the time jump skipping over why Karen and Ed adopted Kelly, and Scott reminded us that the show eventually gives us answers. 
This is that episode. Ed and Karen explained that they struggled after Shane's death, briefly separated, and then learned about Operation Babylift. Kelly asks if she was adopted as a band-aid for their marriage, and Karen says she was their heart transplant. But this information isn't helpful for Kelly in terms of her struggle with her self-identity. She needs to write her application essay for Annapolis and has no idea how to proceed. So she decides to reach out to the orphanage she was sent to in the hopes of learning about her birth family. The episode ends with Danielle and her second in command going to Russia to prep for their mission. Episode seven, Don't Be Cruel. Ellen and Thomas Paine are on their way to Korea to discuss a space alliance. Ellen is about to tell Thomas something. I'm guessing either her plans to divorce Larry or maybe to leave NASA altogether. But then she gets a call letting her know her father's been hospitalized. So she misses the flight to Korea. Good thing she does because the plane, full of civilians, accidentally veers into prohibited Russian airspace and is shot down by the Russians who mistake it for a spy plane. This disaster, by the way, is something that happened in real life too. Thomas Paine wasn't on that plane in real life, but he is in the show, so he's now gone. And the president asks Ellen to replace him. She takes to her new role like a duck to water and decides to arm Pathfinder with nuclear missiles, much to Margot's dismay. Bradford shows Margot the plans the Russians are using to build an upcoming rocket, and she's shocked to see they've copied NASA designs from two years ago, no doubt due to espionage. But what upsets her is that it's a flawed design. She wants to warn the Russians that copying this design could lead to a disaster. Bradford is unmoved and refuses to do this, but Margot, upset by escalating hostilities between the U.S. and the USSR, especially as a result of that Korea airline disaster, brings this news to Sergei anyway, sort of, but not really talking in code. Margot also dips her toe back into mentoring Aleda, and in response to Aleda complaining about her boss, Bill, tries to comfort her by telling a funny story about how Bill once peed his pants at work. Aleda promises she'll never repeat this story, but we've all met Aleda, so we can predict what she'll do with this info. Chekhov's anecdote. <laughs> Another result of the Korean flight disaster is that Danielle is being kept under guard in Russia isolated with no idea of what's going on. Right before she's finally allowed to take a call from NASA, some Russian dude visits Danielle and leaves her a knife so she can carve her name into the door. Back on the moon, it's time to send those Marines to guard the NASA mining site and Tracy flies them in. The female Marine Webster starts humming Ride of the Valkyries to foreshadow her eventual actions. They land at the site and the Russians take their leave. And back on Earth, Tracy's husband offers to buy the outpost from Karen. She agrees, negotiating a good deal for herself. As she says goodbye to the bar, Danny confesses that he's got a crush on her, and they share a dance and a kiss. But then Karen freaks out and runs off, going home to Ed for sexy times. Episode 8, and here's to you. Obviously, the unspoken part of that title is Mrs. Robinson, because Karen decides to give in to Danny's advances, and she sleeps with him. He admits he's in love with her, but she insists this is a one-time thing, and he should not pursue her. I love you, Karen. Okay, let's just, let's get a grip here. Okay, I, I, you're all that I think about. No. 
Margot and Sergei have a romantic comedy moment of their own in the Apollo Soyuz capsule, and Gordo and Tracy share a similar moment when Gordo joins her on the moon. He reveals the truth about what happened with him and Danielle back in the day, and he also reveals his intentions to win her back. Tracy is, I would say, gently encouraging in her response. So the other parts of this episode are less rom-commy. Molly goes to a private ophthalmologist to confirm the news that she's going blind, and she nopes right out of there and goes flying, deciding she can use pure force of will to keep her eyesight. But Wayne has noticed some things up. He forces her to admit to the whole situation, confessing to her sacrifice for Webo and her deteriorating eyesight. Ed and his team begin training on the use of the missiles aboard Pathfinder. Sally Ride is not cool with it. Aleda, being Aleda, gets frustrated with Bill and taunts him about the pants being incident. He understandably is upset and decides to quit because he realizes his colleagues don't respect him. Margot insists Aleda go to Bill and convince him to come back to work. And Aleda throws a temper tantrum and threatens to quit. But she finally pulls herself together and visits Bill. She tells him about how she got shot when she was homeless, and they bond over the entirely parallel humiliations of either getting laughed at by one's colleagues or almost dying. Kelly learns that her bio mother has passed away, but her father lives in the U.S., she takes about a four-hour journey to visit a Vietnamese restaurant he owns and has a conversation with her half-sister, but she doesn't reveal who she is. And finally, the Moon Marines find Russians in their territory, and believing the Russians might be going for a weapon, the Marines panic and open fire. Turns out they were just reaching for a translation card. But now one cosmonaut is dead and the other is injured. So there is a lot to discuss in these episodes, but before we get to the really juicy stuff, I'm going to start the discussion with Kelly. She asks her parents if she was adopted to be their band-aid, and Karen says she was a heart transplant. The statement is meant to be reassuring, but is it? <laughs> Last week, we decided that Ed and Karen have been good parents and role models for Kelly, but are they placing an unfair burden on her to be the glue in their relationship? Rick, I saw you shaking your head there. Yeah, uh, yeah no, if, I'm sure that Karen thought it would be a reassuring, much more poetic thing. I'm not sure there was a right answer for Kelly at that point, though. You know, she's a she's a, a teenager questioning her identity. And I mean, I've never been adopted, so I don't know what exactly they go through. But I'm sure a lot of adopted children have this moment where they're like, why? Why am I not with my birth parents? Why am I here with you? You know, people having children or acquiring children as a way to hopefully save their their marriage is not anything new. Uh, it's rarely a good idea, but it's it happens. So it's not like she, and she knows her parents. <laughs> so I don't think she's too far off base with it. She's just maybe a little harsher than she should be. But then again, she's a teenager and, you know, going through that. I mean, she's better than most about the, you know, I, she doesn't hate her parents. She's not, not having like screaming fits and running and slamming doors and stuff. But I really don't think that was the reassurance that she wanted. But in Karen's defense, I don't know that there was a right answer. Yeah. yeah. 
Exactly. I'm not sure what you can possibly <clears throat> say in that situation. I feel like that that story probably makes it makes things more difficult for Kelly rather than easier. But again, like you said, what could be said? You have to tell the truth. And so there's nothing really that's going to be reassuring in that moment. Well, and it was a strikingly poetic answer. But the only answer is, yeah, we did have you to save our marriage. And and because <laughs> like that's what they did. They had kind of explained it that way already. When I was watching that scene for the first time, I felt that Karen's answer was written to have a, to create an awe, you know, an awe moment with the audience. But if you stop and you look at the dialogue, she's saying, Kelly asks, was I a band-aid for your relationship? And Karen was like, yeah, a huge goddamn <laughs> band-aid, like a really big one. <laughs> yeah, well, and almost saying was heart transplant meaning they were both checked out they were dead <laughs> they were dead without her so yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's it's more pressure i think than she was hoping to find yeah it was way more than a band-aid a band-aid might have you know helped us a little bit when we needed it you we were we were done we were living in separate places we were going to split up but now we're back together because we adopted you before we even knew who you were it sounds like a nice sentiment but karen's response really underscores how right kelly was when when we came back into season two when season two started i was really expecting ed and karen to be divorced and tracy and gordo to still be married and screwing around on each other so it, it they kind of went an opposite direction to what i was expecting hmm. no spoilers but we'll learn <laughs> soon enough what happens with karen and ed yeah yeah but Sticking with uh, Kelly for right now, uh, Scott, what do you think about her decision not to reveal who she is to her birth family? I was kind of on the edge of my seat, wondering what she was going to do throughout that entire scene. And by the time that whole that whole sequence was over, I didn't know if there was you know a a good decision, a right decision, a bad or a wrong one. It made sense, and that's a credit to the writers that the way they constructed the scene, the way they constructed Kelly's character. Her decision, I, I couldn't fault it. I, I, I can see where she's coming from. That make, makes total sense. But if they had written the scene differently where she did explain who she was and whatever the reaction they may have decided she would get from them would have made an equal amount of sense. I don't know if there was a right or wrong, but they kept me believing it the entire time. I wonder if, and this might be me projecting, but I wonder if in light of that conversation about being a Band-Aid, if, you know, she feels a burden towards her adoptive parents and not telling her birth family who she is, is her refusing to give someone else a burden concerning her. That's kind of similar to how I read the situation. Uh, I think Kelly, aside from, you know, being absolutely terrified, I'm sure that there was just a huge amount of fear. But I think she's also one of the only people in this show who's thinking about the consequences of her actions. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah. That's a and good thinking point. forward to what happens if I bring these people into my life or I worm my way into their lives, where do we go from there? And I, you know, she may not have been able to deal with the weight of that decision. You're right. I, Most of the characters in this show are pretty reckless. And Kelly seems to be much more thoughtful. I like Rick's take on it. It's... It's not what I was thinking during that exchange, but I can see where someone would see that. I realized that the answer I gave was all about how I felt about the scene and not 
what the character's motivations might have been. But with with Rick saying that, it reminds me that as I was watching, what I got from Kelly was upon seeing her dad, seeing that photo on the on the corkboard, and realizing band aid or no, I'm with a family that wants me, and I know that they want me. I know that I'm important to them, and not wanting to risk sharing who she is with these people and having it go badly. Indeed, she not only doesn't want to place a burden on her birth family, but she also doesn't want to risk any trouble in her adoptive family. Or a second rejection from her from her birth father. Indeed, yeah. Okay, let's move on to Gordo. Um, he goes to Tracy's husband, Sam, to give him the heads up that he's going to try to win Tracy back. Is this the decent thing to do or is it inappropriate? Gus, why do you think Gordo decides to do this? Because he's a man's man. We discussed a lot about the uh, old boys club and another man deserves respect. I would imagine if he were, if he believes his, well, now ex-wife to be a value, then he has to believe that she didn't pick somebody weak or non-deserving of respect. And now he's just made it a pure competition between two 1940s men. Again, I'm not sure if there's a, a, a right or wrong about this, but it sure is fun to walk up to someone's face and say, it's on like Donkey Kong and then follow through. So we'll see what happens in the next episode. So what about his decision to try to get Tracy back? If you still love someone you're no longer with, do you owe it to yourself to try to be with them? Or should you just leave them be knowing it didn't work out the first time, especially if they're with someone else at this point? It depends how much you like songs from the 40s through the 80s where pining and begging and following someone around wasn't creepy. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, back then that's romance. So as long as he's not really uh, harassing or antagonizing her, and like you said, she sort of playfully returns his affections until it basically works, then uh, you know I think it's just fine. Scott, do you agree? Uh, I, I suppose for the most part, as far as that question, do you owe it to yourself to try to be with someone if you still love them? It's hard for me to look at that question without seeing it through you know, the, the viewpoint of the 2020s, where you can give it a try, but don't be dumb about it. Don't be an asshole about it. Depends on your definition of, of try. You can see if there's a chance, see if there's interest on their part. But it still requires you to kind of step all over the the marriage of the person you want to be with, which isn't always a nice thing to do. But I also don't know if I'm in the best position to answer this question. Being a polyamorous person, the parameters are, are quite a bit different. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Tracy could just be with both of them. Exactly. Had this conversation <laughs> with multiple people. I just think of all the all, all the sad songs in history that would turn out better if you just stop and ask yourself, wait a minute, do I have to pick one person? <laughs> there you go. Songs from the forties <laughs> through the eighties, at least. Yep. Songs, <laughs> movies, television shows, you name it. Except that, as you said, Gus, Gordo's a man's man. And I guess Sam is as well to an extent. So even though they, or at least Gordo is the type to cheat on Tracy, he would never accept her having two boyfriends. The philanderer that refuses to share. Yeah, that, that's a that's a wonderful chestnut. Love that one. 
Well, that, well, that's uh, the thing about Sam or not Sam Gordo is that he is. And this may be why he and Tracy are such a perfect couple, because they are both supremely selfish. They if they could have both accepted the fact that neither was enough for the other, but they still wanted to be together. They could have they could have been the, you know, the polyamorous poster children. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. They're both too selfish. They just mm-hmm. they want to be the star of the show. Yeah. All right, we'll move on to Margot. She tells Sergei about the flaw in the design they ripped off, and her motivation is to save lives. So on a scale of one to, holy shit, this is a slippery slope. I'm now a Russian spy, and I don't even know it. (laughs) How stupid is Margot? Or do you agree with her and think Bradford should have told the Russians about the flaw in an official capacity, thereby taking that burden off of her? So in other words, when you first watched the show and didn't know about Margot's eventual trajectory, no spoilers, were you team Margot or team Bradford? I First of all, I love Margot as a character. She is the most complex character I think I've ever seen on TV. You know, I don't I don't know if there's like if they've got a writer who handles each particular character, but the, the writing on Margot is just beautiful because she's so messed up. <laughs> but so interesting but, and yeah and yeah we're not you know i'm not going to spoil but i did not see where she's at coming at all as far as this particular incident i kind of agree with both of them because i certainly go where bradshaw was coming from he's like we don't have to tell them they're stealing our stuff and if it blows up on them oh well you know it's already established that you know he does not trust them any further than he could throw them and so he'd be only too happy to see a soviet rocket go up uh, in flames. Margot, on the other hand, is she's an idealist and she may also be feeling some, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Some, you know, some taking on some of the guilt for the whole Von Braun thing. And so she may be trying to even subconsciously try to to make up for some of that by giving this information to, quote, the enemy to save lives, because it doesn't matter what flag they've got on their shoulders. There's still people when that thing blows up. Was it the right call? In the in the the world that they're in right now in the show, I think Bradshaw was more right about what was the right move. But it certainly made sense for Margot to do that for her in her as her character. Margot is the character I relate to the most. And yet in this instance, I yeah, I'm Team Bradford. I would not have said anything. Scott, what would you have done? Uh, it that question is more difficult to answer because. I have difficult time discerning what I would actually do in situations like that. I I would hope that I would be more like Margot. While yes, as you guys have said, the military objections are are reasonable, they're well founded, but at the same time, Margot's decision was meant to preserve lives and try to avoid a tragedy like like they experienced themselves with Apollo, right? Okay. Yeah, Apollo 23. Um, Yeah. And in addition to that, not only to avoid loss of life, I can't remember if this was mentioned at all in the episode as as part of her reasoning, but I would assume that it was, that if trying to offer that tip so they can find the flaw and fix it and save lives, that could be seen as an attempt to move toward better cooperation. Actually, it wasn't. Apollo. In their universe, they discovered the O-ring problem on the shuttle before it blew up. 
So the Challenger disaster didn't happen. These were the plans for the Buran, not not for any of their other rockets. That's right. Th- this wasn't to prevent a tragedy like they experienced. It was to prevent a tragedy that they already prevented. Yeah. All right. I feel like the easiest thing to do in any situation is just to not do the thing rather than do the thing. So like not saying anything is the path of least resistance. Gus, I'm going to predict that you think the correct thing to do in this situation is to not tell the Russians. Am I right? So she has a grand idealism and a rose-colored glasses over the whole program. So it's very consistent with her character to hold her ideals forward. And indeed, saving lives immediately is one of those ideals. But on balance, her actions were naive because these are still people with whom they are in the middle of a Cold War, at least. And uh, it sort of comes back to bite her later on when she realizes that they fixed that shuttle, armed it, and launched it. Um, Or at least that's the intel they get in one of the later episodes. I also don't fully trust her motivations because we already noticed her at this point being sweet on Sergei. And so she might just be trying to give him a gift, just trying to impress him. I mean, it could be the idealism of the programs working together. It could be the idealism of trying to save lives. Or it could be her just trying to snuggle up to Sergei because she found a kindred spirit on the other side of the world. And either way, it does come back to bite her. So, I mean, I'm with Scott. I wouldn't know what I would do in the moment. But I agree with you, Neek, that the easiest thing to do is nothing. And... Uh, My rationalization, if I was in that situation and did nothing, would be that I need more information before I make such a drastic decision because she is on a slippery slope to being a Russian spy. And as she was ordered that this was classified, it's instantly made her a traitor. So she's already a traitor to the United States at this point, um, whether she's a, you know, whatever, an accredited (laughs) Russian spy. That's it. She can't plead ignorance because Bradford explicitly told her not to reveal this information. So you're right. She is a traitor. And it seems it's kind of a running thing in this show, which it makes sense. Like what Deke told Ellen in this capsule when they were they were lost, whether he agrees with her being gay or not, she's compromised. She now has a secret that someone, if they found it out, could could hold over her head. And that's what Margot just did to herself. Yeah. She did it to herself. <laughs> All right, let's move on to Bill and Aleda. Um, how do you react to them, I guess, bonding over their shared body shame? Was that scene effective for you, Rick? Actually, it was, which surprised me because when it started, well, first of all, when Margot told Aleda that comment, like I said, jokingly, Chekhov's anecdote, there was no way Aleda wasn't going to throw that back at Bill because he's such a douchebag. Oh, interesting. I don't think he's a douche, but go on. I think he he's all right. Maybe that's a little harsh, but he's definitely socially inept. That doesn't make someone a douche. I, that's that why I just said maybe socially that was inept. <laughs> <laughs> but he's I'm also not taking this personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't speak for Gus, but I think I don't think any of us can throw rocks in this particular glass house. But <laughs> 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 but you know, the science nerds are a whole different breed of don't deal well with other human beings. And they've shown that Bill is not very good at that. But they've also shown that Aleda is hot-headed, 
and doesn't consider her actions at all beyond the, the immediate millisecond. So is why Margot decided to tell that story still baffles me because that that was that seemed a little out of character for Margot because I think Margot if she understands anything it's the chain of command and the need for respect on that chain it was a little heavy handed by the writers in my opinion to to put that in Alita's mind so there was no doubt she was going to use it I didn't expect Bill to resign over it but you know I guess it was the the last straw. And then when she went to his house, I'm like, oh, this is going to be awkward as hell. This is just not going to go well. But I didn't feel the writing of that scene. It didn't feel contrived. It felt very organic. It was it flowed in a way that made sense. So it could have been really awkward. It could have been really trite. It could have been a whole lot of things that it wasn't. I thought it was a very real situation where Aleda realized she'd screwed up and realized she needed to take her mask off for a minute and show herself to to bill in a metaphorical sense and then you know he was talked down and then they had bad beer together and watched jeopardy and was it worked for me i'll admit that i think both of the actors did brilliantly in that scene and so from that perspective i bought their connection and i buy that this eventually becomes a friendship but the scene was difficult for me because and this is not inconsistent with how Aleda is, but I felt like her story was dismissive of Bill's experience because she, I mean, basically what she went through is a lot more serious. So to compare her experience with his, it diminishes his experience because what he did, you know, peeing his pants at work, it renders him ridiculous. It makes him a potential target for bullying forevermore. And we see that he was bullied for it and he's very sensitive about that. Whereas getting shot because of poverty, it's not something to laugh at. You could be pitied over it, but it's not something that people are going to like point and laugh and, you know, leave peanut icons on your desk and be like, ha ha, this thing happened to you. So they're, they're totally different. And I see where she was coming from saying that she now feels ashamed because of this thing. And that's why she won't show her body. But it just seemed so odd to me because it was almost like she was trying to one-up him and diminish his experience. And I liked his reaction at first where he was like, "Ugh, you know, he doesn't want to hear the story. And then he has no choice but to be sympathetic to her because her story is so extreme. So I feel like she really painted him into a corner and that was manipulative of her. But again, that's not inconsistent with who she is, but it, it made me... I won't say it made me dislike her more because, I mean, the bar was low, <laughs> but it certainly didn't make me think better of her. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah, I despised her already and I found new depths in this scene <laughs> because I, I agree with everything you just said. She simply one-upped him. She emotionally manipulated him into a corner. His response to her was like, oh, like, wow. Oh, wow. So even the character, you could see that he was just like, well, I guess my little pee-pee shame is nothing compared to you. But they were two different incidents. Um, I don't know how much you want to break the universe, but I, I feel the writers could have done a lot more if perhaps she has those scars on her back from getting whatever bird shot in the back for actually doing something horrible. Like if she actually admitted to some type of villainy where it represents shame, being an abandoned child in a foreign country and scrounging for food behind a restaurant is not 
shame at survival. But if she were doing something genuinely disreputable, at least, if not villainous, and then got shot and there was no good reason for her to do it, and now she carries around those scars as a mark of shame, then maybe she's given him something of equal or greater value to what she knows about him. And now their balance of power is, is set back. But that's not it. It's all sympathy. It's all like, look at me, one up. Um, you know, I'm so sad and pathetic and I have shame too. And my shame's worse than yours. And now I just, I can't stand this woman. Um, <laughs> I, Tell me how you really feel. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you something. Every time Kelly's on screen, my estimation of her goes up. Every time the lead is on screen, my estimation goes down. Can I, can I shit on Ed to balance things out a little? <laughs> well, yes. I no, do want you to Ed. balance things out. <laughs> not my Ed. He's perfect. <laughs> I, I found the dialogue scene between Aleda and Bill to be dissonant because, as we've discussed, the story that she is telling is not on even footing with what happened to Bill. The whole thing is different. He had a moment of embarrassment at work and it followed him. And she had, well, look, I had a hard life too. So we're the same, right? No, that's not what your story said. And it doesn't form a connection. But the writers had the two characters speaking to each other as though it did fix everything. And that's what I couldn't understand. It was Aleda's reasoning in her story. It doesn't fix anything, but the characters are bonded by the end of that scene. And to see that continue for you know, all the episodes that come after, spoilers, it didn't make sense. That That's what made sense the least, is that by the end of the scene, it actually worked. You're, you're absolutely right there, Scott. Nick, when you were, uh, you said that she, you know, it was believable what she said. And so her one-upmanship, you know, that could be seen as great writing, that she's following, you know, her character so well. But then for that to actually fix it is what breaks the, I guess, breaks the consistency, the consistency of the show in, the, in that one little moment, because the character is consistent, but the outcome isn't. OK, I, I dig what y'all are saying, uh, and you're not wrong. I don't disagree. However, I think you're discounting that whether or not we are looking up from the outside, see these stories as very, very different. I think that Aleda isn't looking at her story as I'm, I'm to be pitied. I'm to be, you know, or, or uh, respected. I think she feels as much shame, not because she got shot, but because she was digging around through dumpsters and homeless. And one of the big problems with homelessness is depression and shame and a belief that you're not worthy of anything more and that just creates this downward spiral that they get stuck in now i'm not saying that bill and Aleda's stories are similar but they both have a similar reaction to their stories yeah i see what you're saying absolutely you're right that Aleda feels shame about her homelessness and her the the possibility of being deported and the the fear of that and she also feels a sense of rejection because she went to Margot for help and was refused. And which is what lead well, I mean, her dad, you know, being deported is what leads her to homelessness. But she tried, she humbled herself to try to find a solution to that problem. And it did not work. So you're right, she's feeling a ton of shame. 
around her homelessness. So I do acknowledge what you're saying in terms of, even though they're not parallel situations, she feels like they could be. Yeah, fair enough. I and absolutely concur with that. And I, I just then at that point, I would say there's a misstep on the writer's part for giving her a shotgun wound because that sort of pays for her shame. Mm. Uh, I, w- I would think if she told the story about being homeless and felt feeling the shame and sleeping in the gutter and that sort of thing, that that's definitely the shame portion. But like, you know, no matter who you are, you get shotgunned in the back. That's badass. <laughs> <laughs> and and let me so, also so, so just, it's just a, a slight misstep on their part <laughs> it, to follow. If we follow your thinking there, Richard. Nash. And, and let me just clarify one thing really quickly. I'm not a particularly f- a fan of the character either, but I think that, Again, she is a genius in a in a you know terrible situation and in desperate need of therapy. But again, we've got scientists, regardless of where they come from, what their what their origin story is, are notoriously bad at interpersonal communication. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like all, all scientists and engineers, they need translators even between <laughs> each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not to paint them all with the same brush, but paint, paint, no. paint. <laughs> I have my own shame, Bill. And believe me when I say that, I'm really sorry. I made you feel yours all over again. It's Margaret Thatcher. Needs to be in the form of a question. Fuck you. Okay, no more burying the lead. Let's talk about Karen and Danny. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> okay, I, I'm not going to ask any gagging. questions. Okay, Rick, go. Okay, when we first saw in the bar and Danny was mooning over Karen, and I, I, I've talked to pretty much all of y'all about this, we all had kind of the same reaction, like, oh, no, they're not going to do that. No, nah, they wouldn't do that. You know, it, it made sense for Danny to have a crush, but that's that's about all it's going to be. And then, oh, my God. I mean, on the one hand, I can see both of them. You know, I, certainly Danny having a crush on Karen makes a whole lot of sense. Karen reacting to this hot young guy having interest in her makes sense also. But she's known him since he was born. And... <sighs> I've been thinking about this because I, when I was 17, I had a 35 year old girlfriend. So, but, but we also, she didn't know me when I was a kid. <laughs> well, except she did because when you were 17, you were a kid. Hey, Oh, well, all right. Yeah. <laughs> but we were also together for two years. She never, she, I kept, you know, Oh, let's get married. She's like, no, when you're 18 and out of school, then we'll talk about it. And she was absolutely right. We, you know, by then we had gone our separate ways and we're still best of friends you know, 70 years, not 70 years later, 60, 50 years. How old are you? I have no idea anymore. (laughs) Looking Um, good for 87 there, bro. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, on the, on the one hand, I know what they're feeling, but on the other hand, she practically raised him. And so it goes from a Mrs. Robinson situation to practically incest. And that's when it just gets really gross. I could see the kiss. It was awkward and uncomfortable in the dance, but I could see them both going, oh, okay, that was fun. And then she immediately goes home and sleeps with Ed. And if that's where they'd left it, that would have been fine. But then they take it all the way. 
And, and I'm not blaming the writers. I don't think it was a bad choice. I think it's, you know, it's certainly something we're all talking about. It's but, very dramatic. Oh, yeah. Man, yeah. But again, Danny thought this was the beginning of his future with the woman he was in love with. And Karen was absolutely irresponsible with going, all right, that was great. Get the fuck out. And that, and you know, we won't, I won't jump the timeline, but that she just knocked over a domino that is going to have huge consequences. Scott, how did you feel about it? Um, I refer back to my, my previous answer. (laughs) 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 It, the, the whole thing made me incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, and a lot of that comes from always wishing, if I'm watching a movie or a television show, wishing that the characters would, you know, be smart, be a little smart. And it was nothing but bad decisions all the way down the line. Karen not paying attention because it would have been painfully obvious to any mildly aware adult that this kid is looking at me in a way that, this kid ought not be looking at me should probably nip this in the bud, but she doesn't notice. And then there's the song and then there's the dance and she should have realized, well, I'm getting some vibes off of this kid. This probably ought not happen. Let's stop dancing. But she doesn't do that. And then just repeat, rinse, repeat with all the subsequent bad decisions. Yeah. Just got uncomfortable. The more that I want to say about the situation relies on, a lot of subsequent episodes so i can't really go into it but this being being the start of this whole grand dramatic saga it was bad decisions on on everyone's part that led to it it's like a train crash that you can see coming you know it's going to be horrible but you can't stop watching kudos to the writers and just the show overall all the the characters and storylines surrounding this you're you're in for the duration and then they throw something like this at you it's like oh for the first time in this series i don't want to see what's coming but you fucking know i'm gonna watch and see what's coming (laughs) (laughs) and then when it happened when it happened we're all like oh i wish that i didn't watch that bravo show you you've got me reacting even if it's not in a good way (laughs) you've got me reacting very strongly that's it exactly they've got us reacting i the first time i watched it i was yelling at the screen like don't do it don't do it no i was yelling at rick i was yelling at rick over messengers oh this is not happening i i I posted them and i didn't put any context i was just like no (laughs) (laughs) so gus what are your thoughts well, I agree. It's uh, it's creepy. It borders on, if that actually goes right into incest levels. It was crazy dramatic. I find every now and then, and Scott, you brought it up like as a positive thing. The writers just throw stuff in there to like sort of wake us up from the trance and drag us down to the next couple episodes. We can start renaming my best buddy Ed to Job. Because everything just just keeps getting dumped on this guy. It's like some kind of cosmic joke. Everything, all the bad things that happened to him that aren't really his fault. I can't, I can't really figure out how this is his fault. Besides the fact that he's, I mean, what was her motivation? Which is why sort of her her acquiescing to the inappropriate come ons from her son's childhood friend 
uh, what was her motivation to do that? She's got a, as far as I can tell, a functioning, if not challenged marriage. She's got, she's got an amazing child. She's on to the next stage of her life, which maybe puts her in a state of frothy chaos for which anything's possible. And that's why she did it. But I mean, she just sold the bar. It's up and up from here. Did she get too big for her britches? I, I have no answers to any of these questions. Why would she do this if for no other reason than just to have Ed get antagonized before the biggest mission of his life? So I believe her motivation mm-hmm. was subconscious. We know from previous episodes that she is fed up with being a space wife. In her conversation with Danny, in their pillow talk, she she says that she doesn't want to go to space. She's not cool with any of this stuff. She's over it. She's done with it. The anguish of constantly waiting for Ed to die and now knowing her daughter is going to be in that same situation, she has had it up to here. And so subconsciously, she wants out. She wants out of her life, hence selling the bar. She wants out of her marriage. Hence, sleeping with someone else to blow it up. And so even if, you know, later on, she might question, it's like, oh, no, wait, I don't actually want out. In that moment, in the heat of the moment, again, I don't think it was conscious on her part. I think subconsciously, she just wanted out. And Danny offered that opportunity. I think if it had been anyone else, like some random guy at the bar or whatever, it could have been anyone else that she had an affair with. I think Danny was just in the right place at the right time to offer Karen an opportunity to blow up her life. And sleeping with a miniature Benedict Cumberbatch. (laughs) I just wish it had been been anyone else at the bar. (laughs) I agree with that because if it was some random stranger in a bar, there'd be a less of a moral burden on her because if we accept what you've just said, then She's basically, well, you said come subconsciously, but she's basically purposely using this child, let's say, to blow up her marriage. That puts her on the same road of despicability, is that a word? As Lita. She it's just the absolute wrong decision at the wrong time. And up till now I've been rooting for her. Nope, I'll bet against her every day of the week now. And but to Scott's point, that is compelling. I'm watching her flame herself out. Now, you see, y'all have been talking about how great Ed is. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the reasons. I why haven't said I a don't... word about him all episode. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about this episode. I think a lot of Karen's problems are because Ed is an asshole and has been treating her like he treated uh, um, Shane, which is if you do what I say, everything's fine. But as soon as you go against me, then I'm going to treat you like shit. And I I agree with what y'all were saying last week about how Ed is finally coming around and becoming a decent human being. But how many shattered lives are in his wake of his finally gaining empathy and realizing that his decisions affect more than just him? I mean, even the whole time when, when he was flying a desk and he was like, ah, fuck it, I'm gonna go back to the Navy. And she's like, no. And he's like, that's, you know, it's what you signed on for. I think a lot of what happened with Karen and Danny is a result of Ed's inattention to Karen at any time other than when he needs her to be his arm piece. I will grant that. And I don't think they 
they set this up explicitly. I think it was more an implication that while Ed is getting better at being there for his family and respecting and, and loving his family, it doesn't seem like he gives Karen a lot of attention, both attention in general and you know, the kind of attention that Danny was giving her. Um, he's there, he's present for the family, but it seems like not in every way. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like Karen was, was wanting for some affection. And I don't necessarily subscribe to Neek's point of view that it was a subconscious desire to blow up her marriage. I think it was just seeking that attention, affection, validation, while at the same time, once again, realizing that her life is her own to do with as she wishes. She sold the bar. She's feeling on top of the world because she made a decision for herself since the beginning when she bought it. You know, from from the end of season one and then through the time jump, she was learning how to be her own person and not just an astronaut's wife. And this is the next step in that. I just sold the bar for big money. I, I made a grown-up decision. I'm a big girl now. Mm-hmm. What else can I do that's an adult decision that I made on my own for myself? I can sleep with Minnie Cumberbatch. <laughs> and the, the yes, I'm going to harp on that because... I, God, Danny looks exactly like Benedict Cumberbatch, but just like shrunk down with a shrink ray. Just, just I don't know why you say that. I, I don't even see with you all, pointing but... it out, I don't see it. Yeah, well, well, now that I mentioned it, you can go back and watch a scene. You'll be like, oh, I see it. It's those. I'm those, not watching that scene again. I it, don't care what it, you say. It's those, <laughs> you can't make me. You can't. It's make those me. snaky eyes with the with the cheekbones and the chin. And the last thing I'll say about the whole bit with with Danny and Karen. I can't say, I, I can't say that I don't understand where Danny is coming from because Chantel Van Santen is a very nice looking woman. Well, everybody <laughs> in this show is gorgeous. I mean, that that's another one of those, you know, those TV show things where everybody is fashion model beautiful and unless they need to be the dumpy person and then they're completely the opposite. There are no yeah, average looking people on this show. Yeah. I, yes. I present to the court exhibit Jimmy Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> what they do to his hair. My God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just, before we move on, I have to ask the obvious question would your reaction to their whole thing be the same if it were the gender reversal? If it were like, if it were Ed having an affair, let's say Tracy and Gordo had a daughter or, you know, Gordo sleeps with Karen's daughter, something like that. I, I've been thinking this question about this question for the majority of my life, because like I said earlier, I was in Danny's position, not as incestuous at all, but young guy with an, with an older woman. And yet, when the genders are reversed, it totally skeeves me out, and I, I want nothing to do with it. I think it's wrong. And I know that's hypocritical as hell. I think that situations like that need to be taken individually. I think it's a good thing that the laws have gotten a lot stricter about that sort of thing over the last 30 years. <sighs> yeah, it's it's probably based in gender norms and it not necessarily misogyny, but maybe misplaced chauvinism. But I'm much quicker to think if a 35 year old man is hitting on a 17 year old girl, well, Danny wasn't 17. He had to be, well, he may have been 17 or 18. I, I look on it much more suspiciously. And 
I have the same reaction, which I know is wrong. Whenever you hear about some, you know, teenage high school kid hooking up with their, his chemistry teacher. And as a guy, and it's terrible, and I, but I still have that reaction and I have to fight it down. It's like, hey, all right, way to go, as opposed to, ooh. And, you know, it's not it's not right either way, but I don't think it's automatically not right either way. I think it needs the the maturity of the people involved need to be taken into account. Neither of those people should have been sleeping with anybody in this show. (laughs) (laughs) What I would say is the females of our species bear the brunt of the practical moral weight of sexuality because they carry the children. So a mature woman who fully understands that. So in this case, she's had a child and even lost a child. She has another child by adoption. She fully understands sexuality and childbearing, whatever. She is able to make as mature as possible a decision about her own body and sex and whatever. And as the female in this uh, relationship, if she is to bear the brunt of the moral consequences, then an older woman is in the right position to do that. Whereas the younger the woman, so if if they were both 17, the the female still has to be more mature than the male because she has more consequence to the sex than he does. He can just start running and never see her again and she has the child in her. So I think the, the inverse where it be an older man and younger woman, there's no way to say that she is in the proper position to bear the brunt of the moral weight. Whereas when it's reversed, like it is in this situation with an older woman, I think that's why it doesn't skeeve us out as much. That's a good point. Because because she she's the moral agent. She's got to carry the brunt of the moral weight and she can because she's the older, more mature one. As soon as you flip it, then it automatically looks like someone who knows more is taking advantage. Yeah. Indeed. And, and especially with Karen in particular, it's already been established that she cannot get pregnant. So in her own mind, this is a less risky endeavor because she, she knows at least there's not going to be that consequence. At the time that I was watching, I had either missed or forgotten that she was unable to have children. So I was terrified that Karen and Danny were going to do what they did. And then it happened. And then immediately was born a greater terror. Luckily it didn't happen, but oof. Having missed that detail that she was no longer able to bear children, oh, I was terrified. <laughs> I was terrified we were going to start season three, episode one, and there's Karen with little five-year-old Danny Jr. <laughs> All right, moving on. Thank God. The the <laughs> We have to talk about the other huge thing that happens in episode eight. It's the shooting of the moon guns and the resulting casualties. So who do you think is to blame for what happened? Is it the Marines for panicking? Is it whoever trained the Marines so poorly? Is it the cosmonauts for reaching for the trunk? Is it the Russians for blowing up the Korean airplane? Is it the president for sending guns to the moon? Is it NASA for not very simply assigning someone who speaks fluent Russian to the Marine team? I have such a problem with the Marines in this show. I don't know if any of y'all know any Marines, but they're not the incompetent goofballs that these people are. They know which end of a gun works. They know how to, that's what they do. I mean, I I was in the Air Force and 
you know, the easiest from a physical standpoint of all the services. We didn't have to sleep in a field and eat bugs and stuff like that. You did and anyways. I... <laughs> <laughs> Leave my hobbies out of it. <laughs> um, but, you know, I met Marines and, you know, they would, you know, we would have good natured ribbing back and forth and army people too. I worked on planes that the 82nd Airborne jumped out of. They are not stupid. They are not incompetent. They have rougher tastes than I do. But if we're, if there's a war situation and I know they're sending in the Marines first, I know we've got a much better chance of getting out of it alive. They're not a bunch of trigger happy yahoos like the, the idiots they have on this show as the Marines. And to be fair, on a lot of television shows and movies, they're not going to send the bottom tier on a mission as important as going to defend the only U.S. base on the moon. They're going to take their best people and send them up there. And that was that was driving me nuts all along. So that situation never should have happened. If they had just sent a crate of guns and sent some astronauts and said, here, go out and put some cans on some rocks and see if you can shoot them off. Then that whole situation would have made a lot more sense, would have still been tragic. But having it be Marines really pissed me off. Total agreement with that. I, I could not understand their non-use of basic tactics. The Russians were in the middle of an open field with a couple crates and some machinery around them. And there were plenty of these I mean, I don't know if you call them stalagmites at that point, but these pointy space rocks sticking up all around the Marines. And they all just left cover to say hello and walked towards them into the open when they have guns that I think the effective range on the moon would be infinite. (laughs) 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 All they had to do was stay behind cover and issue commands and there would have never been that scenario. And so for both of these major nitpicks, the the Marines being incompetent and this, the specificity of these guys leaving cover. I think it's because the writers don't understand or don't like military or guns. Plain and simple, they, they did not take the time to understand what they were playing with. They just wanted to put in, let's say, a story that could trigger off of North Americans' fear of people getting shot for reaching for things. Yeah. And, and there could have been a better way to have done that. Absolutely. But yeah, that whole situation was just so contrived and so ridiculous that it just, it was just, it was stupid. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to have an opinion on who was right because the situation was so badly written that I, I yeah. can't have an opinion on how it should have gone because it shouldn't have happened at all. That's it. I, I, I rewatched that scene many times in preparation for this podcast. And I got more and more angry as I watched it because like we've all said, I mean, it just never should have happened. They were so incompetent. Their tactics were so ridiculous. I mean, at first I wasn't even thinking about the tactic stuff, but then Gus, you and I had a conversation about it and you were explaining what should have happened in that situation. I don't know if you want to reveal that you actually you teach firearm safety and you teach shooting and tactics yeah at least to an extent you know a little bit about what would be proper tactics in this situation and for me the most upsetting part is that they didn't have someone who spoke fluent russian on the team like there should be someone on jamestown whose entire job is to to speak russian just in case there should be someone on jamestown there should be someone at uh, JSC, there, there should be 
considering the situation, they've been in this race since 69. They should be on on the ball with this by now. Something that's bothered me from the beginning of, well, not beginning of the series, but the beginning of Jamestown is the show has been portraying. And I, I don't, I'm not saying it bothers me from a, a, you know, patriotic America, fuck yeah situation or status, but the Russians have been pretty cool this whole time. You know, they, they land on the moon, they put up their base, they're doing their stuff. And then as soon as one of them needs help, Ed's like, I'm going to get I'm going to airlock you and then tie you up. And then the Americans are the aggressors in this whole show. And keeping keeping in mind that the Russian needed help because Ed stranded him. Okay, but the Russian then reacted by putting an espionage device in Jamestown and the Russians stole the specs from NASA. So we know the Russians, maybe they're not they're more. um, Oh, gosh, this really explains who I am, that my metaphor is going to be the following. The Russians are like the Romulans and the Americans are like the Klingons. (laughs) Yeah. So the Americans are being more overt and more aggressive, but the the Russians are being much more covert, but just as nefarious. In the movie 2010, uh, which is the sequel to 2001, the opening scene is a Russian scientist and an American scientist having this very awkward conversation. And the Russian says something about, you know, we know you're building this ship. And uh, the American scientist says, it took you that long to steal that bit of information. And the Russian says, how long does it take you to steal ours? This is the kind of stuff that the the whole espionage, that's the whole Cold War in a nutshell. I'm going to ask for forgiveness from our host because I'm going to spoil one episode ahead. As it turns out, the Russians had a lot of guns on the moon. And so they had already brought guns up on the moon. They were the first one, as far as I could tell, to steal assets on the moon from the Americans. And so I disagree. The Russians appear to be the aggressors in this. And um, the Americans just pulled the trigger first. Mm. And which it might have been the, the plan all along. Taunt, taunt, taunt. I, I had, a, I think, a sibling that did this to me. Taunt, taunt, taunt. <laughs> And as soon as I freak out and throw things, well, then I get grounded and they get what they wanted. So, that, that, so again, I, that's a good point. I forgot about the the Russians having guns. I forgot about that part. Yeah, that that come by well, this it it comes next. So it, it's jumping the gun a little bit. But I mean, I mentioned it last week. I mentioned it again. Don't ask what you can't take, and don't take what you can't keep. Yeah. And the Americans just assumed we just assumed that oh well we've got this mine on the on the moon it's ours why would anybody come and take it. And the Russians come in and, and take it. You know, that, that's, that's a use of force. It's, it's a very light use of force. But if, uh, if I just sit in the front seat of your car and refuse to let you take your car, that's a use of force. If you don't have a gun, it's my car now. <laughs> yeah. You know, and as for the, we'll call it the inter, interstellar body, it's not quite interplanetary, the interstellar body politics of a, the Korean plane being shot down, the, the war just got hotter. Let's just say that the Cold War yeah. just warmed up a lot. So one of the discussions that we'd had on, let's say, the use of force incident between uh, the Americans and the Russians they shot was what level is this use of force act represent? Now, it's obviously not civilian self-defense. It's not wartime, but it's peacetime military action. Uh, and so it, it's imagine a, a barricade at a top secret bunker of some kind you're building the a-bomb behind you and someone shows up 
and the guards are standing there with their whatever M60s, I guess. I don't know what it was back then. And somebody just keeps walking and you're like, no, you can't come in here. And they keep walking past the barricade. You can't come in here. Eventually, the, the military can shoot them. They have, they have the authority to shoot them. And so in trying to determine the rightness or wrongness of these actions, tit for tat, who came first, who did what first, eventually, if you've got any asset anywhere, if it's not being protected, you don't actually have that. And so last episode, I was saying that it took them way too long to actually have guns up there. And as for the use in this, in this episode, besides sloppy writing, I would have to say that the, uh, the Marines incompetently raised the threat level by approaching the Russians, forcing the situation to escalate. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, is I, I don't know if we ever know if these are the same two Russians they scared away from the first sight. Yeah. So, so in the previous episode, they, they scared them away and they both saw the guns and ran. That's fairly appropriate. If you see people with guns, run. Run away. You have two choices. <laughs> run, freeze, or fight back. Well, if you don't have guns, you're not fighting back. So run or freeze. And then they do these weird half measures of reaching into a case. Point is, the, the Marine who took the shot may have assumed just half a second too quickly that there was guns in there. But it turns out she was right. They had tons of guns, just not in that box. Yeah. <laughs> she had a reasonable suspicion to believe that they could be reaching for deadly force. Yeah, at that point, you're you're absolutely right. The actual incident, but as we said, the, the what led up to it was stupid. The one thing I do want to point out, though, uh, about the, the shooting down of the plane, reprehensible though it was, Bradford all but admitted they had been using civilian aircraft as surveillance yes. planes. So- yes, yeah, it, it was shot down near near directly over the island that had just gotten the pictures back of the shuttle that had just been repaired because of the traitorous actions of yeah. our heroine. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's clean in this show. <laughs> Indeed. It's infuriating watching the back and forth between the Americans and the Russians because all of it is so believable. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the situation, the, the way it was constructed in, in the script, yeah, there are plenty of holes in that. But overall, especially in the Russians. Ah! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, overall. We can we can see all of that happening. Uh, we we can see one one Russian is reaching for a box, which we find out afterward. Ostensibly, they were reaching for a translation card so they could like say who they are and try to open up a dialogue because Russians aren't speaking English and they know that Americans aren't going to be speaking Russian. And knowing that we're on the moon, no one is moving quickly, so it's not like a Russian reaching into the box is going to pop up with a gun and get a shot off accurately before the Americans can respond. So in, in my head, I'm saying, just just wait and see what's happening. You got plenty of time. You've already taken aim. All you have to do is pull the trigger. You, you don't have to rush. You don't have to, oh, they're, they're on fire. Okay. <laughs> you rushed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But by the I, same I, token, the one cosmonaut reaches into the trunk and gets shot. And then the second cosmonaut reacts to that by also reaching into the trunk like you just saw your buddy get shot for that action are you going to do the exact same action so everyone in this scenario is being very stupid Mm. 
I'm just not sure when it occurs because I did watch one further episode. I was compelled to do four episodes instead of three this week. So I'm not sure when it happens. But when the first astronaut who was shot, the one who didn't go up in flames absolutely horribly, he speaks English well enough to say, I want to defect to the United States. Mm. So he speaks English well enough to do that. So now I'm making stuff up. Did they want to get captured and or shot and or something? Mm. Ooh, that is interesting. Now it went horribly wrong for his buddy who went up in flames. And ideally you can just give up. But again, if their if their comms are being if their communications are being uh, monitored, maybe they didn't want to speak English too quickly. Maybe he didn't know enough English. I, I'm not sure, but the exact astronaut who got first got shot wakes up and says, I want to defect the United States. The first thing he says. So he speaks enough English to say, don't shoot, don't shoot, or stop, 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 or it's okay, it's okay. He, he has enough English to, to give, and he doesn't give it. And then his first English spoken is, I want to defect. So that, that can, this confounding the situation a little bit. Right. So that's, again, so that's either sloppy writing or it was deliberate on that cosmonaut's part. Interesting. That's right. And the, every time we say sloppy writing, I bristle because this show is not sloppy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, in, that's why when it is, it's that much more aggravating because it is right. a very tight show. Yeah. 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 So if there's nothing else on that topic, is there anything else that anyone wants to bring up? Yeah, one thing, really a nitpick, I'll grant you that, but uh, a very anachronistic thing, and they came out of this episode and they, they said it more than once, I think. Stay in your lane is a modern phrase, like modern within the last couple of years that it became popular. They were not saying it in 1970 or 1986 or whenever. This is, this, I think it was 83. What's the etymology of that expression? Not poking your nose into somebody else's area of expertise. Think, right. But if you're, if you're saying it's very modern, what popularized it? I, my students have been saying it, you know, for you know, maybe a three or four years. But I know I'd never heard anyone say stay in your lane in the 80s. Well, this is a parallel dimension. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> they, like they I said, it's a nitpick. <laughs> a whole bunch, they innovated a whole bunch of things sooner than we did. So maybe yeah. they... <laughs> Okay, well, if there's nothing a... <laughs> else, <laughs> I reject your nitpick. Okay. <laughs> Whereas now I'm going to go look it up to see when it yeah, did really. make a vernacular. <laughs> you you peak my interest. The origins of the phrase are unknown, but it vaulted to the top of the headlines in 2017 when LeVar Ball, founder and CEO of sports apparel company Big Baller Brand, told Fox Sports 1 host Christine LaHaye to stay in your lane during an appearance on The Colin Coward Show. I, that is, de I've been saying stay in your lane a lot longer than 2017. That's for sure. <laughs> I was born sure. saying it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's enough of that. We will now <laughs> wrap things up. Rick, have you got anything to plug? Uh, sure. You can find me on that Star Trek podcast right here on the network. Occasionally on Captain Game Show on Cosmic Potato which there may actually be one coming up soon. And if I ever get to where I can say two more or more sentences in a row without coughing my guts out, uh, I will be starting my new show, The Geekly World News, all the news you nerd to know. Nice. And Scott, what have you got to plug? 
I am the host of that Star Trek podcast here on the Infinite Potato Alliance and an occasional guest on Captain Game Show, occasional panelist on Cosmic Potato. And Rick, I will see your there might be a new episode and I will raise you a there will be a new episode coming. Oh, yeah, that's true. And I know this because you and I were the only ones there. Indeed. (laughs) I I still have some editing to do. (laughs) Yes. And outside of podcasting, people can feel free to visit my website and check out some of the graphic artwork that I do for fun and profit at www.planetrisecreative.com. And I know Gus is a ghost who was never here. Never here. Never heard of who? (laughs) As for me, I'm also a regular panelist on that Star Trek podcast, and you can find my weekly recaps of Star Trek episodes at superanemic.com. Even when there's no new Trek being broadcast, I recap old Treks. Now that Strange New Worlds is done for the season, I've gone back to good old TNG. And Neek goes through the things you don't want to have to go through. So just so appreciate (laughs) that, folks. (laughs) I shall have no word against TNG. (laughs) Even the relatively stinky second season. (laughs) And with that, we say bye, Bob. Bye, Bob. Bye, Bob. Bye, Bob. Did that piece of crap really go to space? Who is that space crap? (laughs) I swear I could sell actual crap. You know, just a Ziploc bag filled with it if I said it went to space. Don't doubt it. What? Never wants to go to space. Not me. Never have. But most people never will. So come in here, buying some goofy trinket is the closest they'll ever come to the real thing. Then that's to start selling tickets. NASA's never going to do that. They would never sell tickets to space, right? Thank you for listening to Moon Show, a For All Mankind podcast on the Infinite Potato Alliance. For more great shows, please go to infinitepotato.com. Our theme music is Small Victory by Steve Combs, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. You can find more of his music at freemusicarchive.org slash music slash Steve underscore Combs. I was That's born sure. saying it. <laughs> <laughs> she said that to her twin, which is why it never came out. What? <laughs> Did you just get it? <laughs> yes, I just got it. <laughs> you can cut Okay. That. <laughs> Quite the divergence. <laughs> All right. That's enough of that.